We are entering into a time of year, season of the year, where we spend time specifically thinking about Thanksgiving. Like, we'll, we'll have a holiday that we'll celebrate at the end of this month. And of course, December and Christmas is wrought with that as well, too. So we're in this season of, uh, of Thanksgiving. And maybe some of you are here this morning and you're thankful for that extra hour of sleep that you got last night. Maybe you're here this morning and you have little ones and you're not as thankful for it because it absolutely wrecks their internal uh, clocks. In any case, when, when we gather for worship, it really is an opportunity for us to slow down together as God's people and, and to remember and to focus in on the things that we are really truly thankful for. And that is that we are a people who belong to Jesus. So let's hear God call us to worship this morning. This is from Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Let us thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. If you have a copy of the scriptures uh, with you, if you would turn with me to John chapter 19. We're going to look at the second half of verse 16, all the way through verse 30 today. As you're turning there... Last week, Dave talked to us about uh, how Jesus was going to drink the, the cup that God had set out for him, the cup of, uh, of wrath to purchase forgiveness for our sins and to give us life. And that scene sort of ends with a mob who's trying to arrest Jesus. And what ultimately happens is Jesus does get arrested. And then he has a trial with the Roman government, and he also has a trial with the Jewish leaders as well, too. And he is ultimately convicted of the crime of insurrection. And then he is tortured, and he's sentenced to death. And that's what we're going to take a look at this morning, is Jesus' death, uh, his crucifixion. So we're going to read together verses 16 through 30. This is God's word for us this morning. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless Woven in one piece from top to bottom, so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Let's uh, pray together and ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Father, we pray that you would give us uh, understanding this morning, that you would help us to see what is going on in this, in this passage and what is going on in the big picture of what you are doing through Jesus' crucifixion. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work in our hearts to see that Jesus really did die for our sin and he really did purchase life for us. And would you help us to believe that? Would you help us to believe that Even if it's for the first time, would you help us to believe it over and over and over again? Because we need it every day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start by by naming uh, this reality that there is a lot in this text that we won't be able to cover today. I was telling Dave earlier this morning that after looking back through this passage and everything, I think that we could get at least two, maybe three sermons out of just this passage. So I'm going to focus us in on something uh, particular. But what we do have happening here is, is we get the opportunity to participate in looking behind the curtain of what is going on in, in all of Scripture this morning. When I was in college in the early 2000s, there was a movie that came out uh, called Ocean's Eleven. Anybody seen Ocean's Eleven? And then there's subsequent movies, 12, 13, 72, something like that. And, and it's, actually, it's actually a remake, I think, from a movie from the 1960s, right? But uh, I really liked Ocean's Eleven. And part of the reason that I liked Ocean's Eleven was because Matt Damon and Brad Pitt and George Clooney were in it. And I loved those guys. They're some of my favorite actors. So the cast was awesome. But I liked the whole plot line behind it. Uh, in Ocean's Eleven, what, what happens is these 11 guys who are basically professional heist men, like they're professional robbers. That's what they do for a living. They come together to try and pull off like the biggest heist ever in history. And what they're doing is they are trying to rob a casino in Las Vegas. And we get to watch their whole process of working out all the details about how they're going to do this and everything. And my favorite part in each of these movies is the part that is at the end where we get to see how they actually pulled everything off. And like we get to peer behind the curtain of what they have been, this elaborate plan that they have been putting together to rob this casino. We even get to see characters who are doing things that they don't even know what it is that they're actually doing, that are just playing a part and a role in this whole bigger scheme of things. Well, That's a little bit like what's going on in this passage this morning for us. There's a lot of bigger things that are happening. And what I want us to do together this morning is take the opportunity to peer back behind the curtain. 
to, to be the one seeing the big picture of what is going on. And the way we're going to get at that is we're going to take a look at a couple of things. One is we're going to look at a story of fulfillment, and then we're going to think about, so what? What, is that, what does that mean for us? So let's dig in. Let's dive into this story uh, of fulfillment. Jesus is arrested. He's tried, and he is convicted. Then he is tortured. I mean, pretty, pretty rough stuff. Uh, he's mocked. He's beaten within an inch of his life. And then we pick up with where John, where, where we see John this morning carrying us, which is the path to the cross. And John starts in verses 17 and 18 by telling us that Jesus carries his own cross and that he carries it to a place of a skull which in Aramaic was called Golgotha. And, and you can imagine, like, place of a skull, like that's kind of a foreboding image, isn't it? And Jesus is carrying his cross to this place. If we were to look at some of the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke, uh, some of what they tell us is that Jesus is so beaten and he's so worn down that he ultimately just cannot carry the weight of the cross anymore. And a guy named Simon steps in to help out. Simon of Cyrene steps in to, to help out. And then John tells us that Jesus, he's on this cross, and then there are two others that are there beside him, and he is situated in the center. And Matthew and Mark record for us that Jesus has a conversation with these two, these two other men that are up there with him, his crossmates. And he even tells one of them that, that he will be in paradise with him today. You, you notice if you look back through John's story here, but then if we also were to take a look at Matthew and Mark and Luke as well, all four of the Gospels, they're incredibly detailed. Like they have names of places, like place of a skull. They include details like that this place was near the city, but it's outside of the city that we see later on in John's passage. They include things like names of people, like Simon of Cyrene. And the reason that the gospel writers include all of these details is because they are communicating something to us. And what they are communicating to us is that the events that are being recorded actually happened. Like, they really happened. Like, you can go and talk to Simon of Siren, and he'll tell you about how he carried Jesus' cross for him. Like, you can go to this place, this place of a skull. This would have been a known place, Golgotha. You can go there. You can see where it actually really and truly happened. The details that the gospel writers give us is to communicate to us that this is a real, actual, historical event. And then John in verses 19 and 20 tells us that Pilate puts an inscription above Jesus' head on the cross. And that inscription reads, King of the Jews. And John tells us that that really upset the Jewish leaders that were there. And so they go to Pilate and they tell Pilate, look, we don't want you to put that inscription. We want you to put the inscription that this man said that he was the king of the Jews. Pilate says, look, it's done. What's written is written. And he not only writes it once, he writes it three times in three different languages. He writes in Aramaic, he writes it in Greek, and he writes it in Latin. 
Latin would have been basically the trade language of all kinds of different peoples in the Roman Empire. Aramaic was more specific to some of the religious language within the Jewish people. Greek was the language of the intellectuals and the philosophers. And Pilate doesn't know that he's playing this role, this part, but he has actually recorded for us the very first written recording of the gospel. And he's done it in such a way that anybody who saw it would know exactly what it said. He has no idea that he's playing that role. And then John tells us in verses 23 and 24 that there are soldiers who are there at Jesus' crucifixion and that they take his garments and they divide them up amongst one another. And we see that there are four soldiers that are there who take each a piece of the garment and then they look at his tunic and his tunic is one singular piece of cloth. And so they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to cast lots to see who, who gets the tunic, to see which one of them will get that, and then they'll be able to take their spoils from this poor guy who's been hung on a cross, and then they will go back into town, and they will sell it, and they'll make profit uh, off of it. And then that leaves Jesus totally exposed, y'all, like 100% naked hanging up there on this cross, bloodied, beaten. And then John jumps to three Marys and to John. Jumps to Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary's sister, Mary, and then Mary Magdalene as well, too. And then his beloved friend and disciple, John, the one who's actually penning these words, here for us. And I'm so struck by Jesus' response in the face of death. He looks at his mom and he says, Behold your son. And he looks at John and he says, Behold your mom. You know, it's like Jesus, in this moment, even as he is dying, he's bearing the weight of our sin and the sin of the world. He looks at John and he says, Take care of my mama. She's going to need somebody to take care of her. Please take care of her. It's so, so human and relational. And then in verses 28 through 30, John tells us that Jesus knows the full picture. And knowing the full picture, he knows that he needs to fulfill the scriptures. And so he does so by saying, I thirst. I'm thirsty. And then these soldiers that are there, they take the sour wine that they have, and they put it on a sponge, and they put it on a hyssop branch. And they put it up to Jesus' mouth. And then Jesus says, it is finished. He breathes his last breath, and then he dies. You know, each time that I, I read this story, whether it's in John's gospel or Matthew or Mark or Luke, I'm just struck by how sad this story is. And frankly, like honestly, how like heavy and, and weighty that it is. I'm struck by this fact that, that here, here's this man. He's an innocent man. He's done nothing wrong. He's convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. He's tortured. He's beaten. He's mocked. And then he's sentenced to death. Death on a cross where 
his hands and his feet are nailed up to a cross, and he just bleeds out from all of the beating that he's taken, and ultimately he's unable to, to breathe, and he, and he dies. But you know what else I notice in all of the gospel's accounts of Jesus's crucifixion is that there are little clues and details along the way that hint at something to us, that there's something bigger than just a wrongful conviction going on here. There's a bigger thing that is happening. And John tells us that what that bigger thing that is happening is fulfillment. And this fulfillment, it's cosmic. It's rooted in history. It comes into our present and it carries us on into the future. And so we've got to take a look at what it is that Jesus is fulfilling. We've got to put some of these pieces together, just like in Ocean's Eleven as the things unfold and we get to see what's really happening. We've got to dig in here and put some of these pieces together. So what is it that Jesus is fulfilling? Well, in order to put these pieces together, we've got to go back to the beginning of time as we know it. We have to go back to the creation of all things. Back to the very first parts of the Bible in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where God speaks everything into existence. There was nothing. He spoke and things happen. And he creates man and woman and he calls them Adam and Eve. And he looks at them and says, you bear my image in the world that I have made. You are made for me and for this world. You are made for relationship with me and you are made to live out that relationship faithfully and in obedience to, to the one who made you, to your maker. God tells them that they are to be representatives in all of his creation, to steward over everything that he has made. But we know how the story goes. Adam and Eve did not live out faithfully their relationship with God. They were not obedient. They rebelled. They thought that life was better on their own terms than on the terms of the one who spoke them into existence. They thought that life was about self and that it revolved around self. And what happens is death and destruction enters into God's creation and into our lives and chaos ensues. But we continue on and we see that God is not the kind of God who leaves his people alone. He pursues Adam and Eve. He comes to them graciously and with mercy in mind to forgive them of what they have just done. And he provides a way to provide a covering for them to cover over their sin. And he gives them a promise that he's one day going to send someone who will deal the final blow to sin and that that someone will be the seed of Eve. We look back at Genesis 3.15, we see that. That someone through Eve will come and will deal ultimately with our rebellion. With sin, with brokenness, destruction, and death. And what we have to see about John 19 is that Jesus is fulfilling that final blow here. Jesus is the seed that was promised in Genesis 3. And then... 
John and the other gospel writers show us that we have to connect Genesis 3.15 and the seed of Eve with another portion of the Old Testament, Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 shows us exactly what that final blow from the seed of Eve will look like. Psalm 22 is a psalm that's written by King David. And King David writes this psalm and it pictures for us a public execution. A spectacle of a king who's being crucified. Who's mocked, who's beaten, who feels forsaken by God. Matthew and Mark will actually record that Jesus says on the cross the very words of verse 1 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This king in Psalm 22, his garments are torn. They are divided amongst his captors and thirst consumes him. What's interesting about Psalm 22 is often David's psalms are written about personal experiences that he has. But David was never crucified. This was never done to David. David, too, is playing a part that he may not know. And he is writing about this king who is going to come who will be crucified for his people. John 19 is showing us that Psalm 22 is ultimately about Jesus. And as we connect Genesis 3 and Psalm 22 to John 19, we see that the seed that is promised is a king that is crucified. And that king is King Jesus, king of the Jews, king of the universe. You see, in order for the promise to be fulfilled, the king must be crucified. It has to happen. Well, maybe you're out there and you're like, well, that's, that's great. It's interesting bits of history there, interesting connections maybe that you're making. But so what? What does that mean? What does that mean for me? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for, for you? So here's point number two, the so what? Death and destruction through rebellion is all over the place. We know this in our very own lives. If we, if we pull back the camera and take a look at a big view of things, we see this all over our world. In 2013, I can remember watching the, the, the BBC news broadcast where we found out that there was this small village in northern Syria and that there had somehow been this incredible chemical attack released on thousands of people in this village. Men, women, young, old, babies, children, mustard gas released. Some of them died. Some of them are affected for the rest of their lives. And then as the news unfolded and things rolled out, we came to understand that it was the very own government of these people that did it to them. The government, who is supposed to be entrusted with the welfare of its people, turned and unleashed chemicals on an entire village, destroying people, destroying their lives. Step back just a little bit further in time, 1994, to a country in Africa called Rwanda. And there was a civil war in Rwanda, and it was between two groups of people. 
And one group thought that they were better than the other. And so they thought, these people don't deserve life at all. So let's wipe them off of the face of the planet. And in the course of three months, between 500,000 and 1 million people were killed. All because they weren't the right race. Whatever that means. And then we even have to dip back into our own history and recognize that the United States of America is 100% built on buying and selling other image bearers of God as if they were goods to be bought and sold. That's our history. Those are the shoulders that we stand on as a country. We treated an entire continent of people as if they were just something to be thrown away. Destruction is everywhere. We cannot get away from it. It is reality. And God's word tells us that death and destruction has come because of rebellion against him. That's why it exists. And it so well explains the world that we live in, doesn't it? Because we see the effects of rebellion and sin all around us. And God's word continually communicates to us that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And we feel that deep down. We know that. That's not hard for us to agree with. We all feel deep down that evil doesn't belong here. That hatred doesn't belong here. We long for the things that are wrong to be made right. We become and we should be outraged when we see atrocities like this. And it leaves us all with this sense that there are things in this world that are just left unfinished. And the response for the most part has been, well, let's see if we can fix humanity with humanity. Let's see if we can fix the evil and the atrocities in the world uh, that are exercised by humanity with humanity. And so we try to do that, and the problem is, it doesn't work. And the reason that it doesn't work is because at the root of evil atrocities are other human beings carrying those things out. Giant humanity-sized evils show a rebellion that actually reaches down into every individual heart. A heart, the heart behind human atrocity in history is the same that drove Adam and Eve to rebel against God in the first place. And that's a heart that desires self. A heart that desires life and a world on my terms. A heart that desires to protect self above everything else. Whether that's to maintain political power, whether it's to wipe out the opposition, or to take advantage of desperate and marginalized people for our own gain. It's all born from individual hearts that want to serve and protect self. Hearts that think at the end of the day that we're better than other people. Hearts that, that think at the end of the day we deserve more than other people. 
And none of us are exempt from this. None of us. We all have this sin condition. We all stand on the shoulders of Adam and Eve. We all demand life on our own terms. Let me invite you in. Let me, let, let me invite you to consider this for yourself. And the way I'll do that is sharing with you how I really feel like life should be on my own terms. Because I do this daily. People getting my way on the road, man, get out my way. Where I'm going is far more important than where you need to go. I get a text while I'm driving. That text I got is far more important than the life of the people beside me driving on the road. At home, I can't really be bothered to care for family pets because I got more important things to do than to go pick up poop in the backyard. I'm more important. I come home and my kids are just excited to see me. Why is it that the first thought that goes through my head is, how come they don't know how hard my day has been? When I come home and Carrie's had a difficult day and she just wants to share that burden with me, how come my response to that, in my gut, my, 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 my initial reaction is always, there's no way her day was as difficult as mine is. And so I'm just going to wait till she gets finished with whatever it is that she's got to say so that I can jump in and share with her how much mine is far worse than hers was. The story of one-upsmanship. I genuinely feel like I have moral superiority over my children. That my heart is actually better than theirs. And I ascribe motives to them all the time. All the time. My heart's more pure than theirs is. And look, we could be here for another two hours. And I could tell you just how much more deeply this goes. But I'd invite you, what about you? Where do you demand life on your own terms? You see, the seeds that lead to all of the atrocities of humanity, they actually exist in our very own hearts. Our very own hearts that are bent on serving self, that are bent on having life on my own terms. So what does Jesus' fulfillment in the cross have to do with us? Everything. Everything. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the one who crushes sin, defeats rebellion, and he can because he never sinned. He never rebelled against his father. And Jesus absolutely fulfills Psalm 22 as well. You see, the seed of Genesis 3 is the king who is crucified. And he doesn't just fulfill these intricate little details. He fulfills the heart of what we see in Psalm 22. Because in this public execution that must happen for sin to be vanquished, the king, the, the king of Israel, King David, tells us that what happens when this king is crucified is that righteousness is purchased. And it is available to any and all who would turn to their God.
Jesus purchased righteousness for us, for you and for me. We are broken and messed up. And we cannot fix ourselves. We absolutely need God to fix us. We must have a king who is willing to be crucified for our sin. For our rebellion. And that is exactly what Jesus does. That's exactly what he does here. He becomes our sin for us. He is forsaken for us that we would have forgiveness and we would have restoration with God. And we would have restoration with each other. And then John leaves us with the ultimate big reveal. The ultimate fulfillment. Jesus' last words and the last words of Psalm 22 echo each other. Jesus' last words, it is finished. King David in Psalm 22 writes, He has done it. The language that John uses here, it's not passive. It's not as if something just happened to Jesus. It's active. He pursued this. He pursued the cross for you and for me. My translation of it is finished is it's completely completed. Jesus has completely completed it. He has absolutely fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3. It's in perfected tense. It applies to the past, to our present, and it goes on into the future. Jesus really and truly has done it. Righteousness has been brought through his sinless life and his willing death on a cross to become sin for us, exchanging his perfection for our rebellion for our hearts that are bent and twisted and demand life on our own terms. And Jesus has even died for those longings that we have to see a world that, that, where evil doesn't exist anymore. All of those right longings that we have to see all of the wrongs made right. All of the things that are left unfinished to be finished. Jesus finishes it. And he ultimately gives us another promise as well, too. He brings us into his family, and he makes the promise that he's going to come back. And when he does, he'll wipe the tears away from our eyes. And all of the atrocities of human history will be redeemed by his blood and by his body. Do you want that? Do I want that? Do you have that? We all need it. We need to receive our crucified Savior King this morning. The one who has come and he has done it. It is finished. He has completely completed it. And we have life in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you this morning and we read, Jesus, what you willingly did for us in going to the cross and laying down your life for us.
that we would be forgiven of our sin and our brokenness and we would be able to lay hold of and claim to the promise that you give us life and the promise that you are actually going to redeem all of creation, including each one of us. Would you help us to hang on to that hope this morning? Would you help us to bring all of ourselves to you, to confess our sin, to be vulnerable about our brokenness and know Jesus that you look at us and you say, it is finished. We pray these things, Christ, in your name. Amen. And so leave here this morning knowing that you have a God who loves you so much that he would give you his only son so that we would have life in him. The Lord will bless you and he will keep you. This week... Your God's smile is upon you. He looks at you and he delights in you, his sons and his daughters, and he will be gracious to you. And this month and this year and in the age to come forever and ever and ever, Jesus' presence is with us and he will make us whole because in him it is finished, beloved. Go in that peace.